0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. After a significant victory in World War II, Winston Churchill said, this is not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Well, this morning as we return to Matthew's Gospel, we are well past the end of the beginning. And I would tell you today we have actually come to the beginning of the end. Because today we come to Matthew chapter 26, which begins what scholars call the passion narrative, the description of the final days of Jesus' earthly life culminating in his death on the cross as he bears the Father's wrath for our sin. Now, we're still several sermons away from the cross. A number of things must take place before Jesus dies. And today as we come to Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16, We're going to see four scenes that set the stage for what is to come. And we can divide these four scenes into two parts. First, we're going to begin by just looking at Jesus and being reminded of who he is and what he's doing, what his mission is. And then second, we're going to see three responses to Jesus. Three responses that lay the groundwork for the events that are going to come to pass that that will culminate in his death. Three responses which are similar to the responses that people have to Jesus even today. But before we get into all that, let's just start with our first point in which we consider Jesus and remember who He is and what His mission is. For those of you who haven't been with us before or for those of you who have and have forgotten what we've been doing in recent weeks, let's do a little bit of review just so we remember what's going on in the book from a big picture perspective. Back in chapter 21, Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover because Exodus 23 commanded all Jewish men to go to Jerusalem for Passover. So Jesus has made this trip, as have thousands of other pilgrims. And many of these pilgrims have come from Galilee, where Jesus ministered in the early chapters of this book. And these people know about Jesus, and they are excited about his fantastic, miraculous powers. And so when Jesus got up on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, these pilgrims began worshiping and celebrating, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Because they understood that Jesus was now openly identifying himself as the Messiah, the long-promised King of Israel. But although the pilgrims made this huge commotion, the people who lived in Jerusalem did not share their enthusiasm. They weren't interested in the Messiah's coming or prophetic fulfillment. They saw these things as inconvenient and dangerous, as inviting reprisal from the Romans who were occupying their land. So the people of Jerusalem were not open to Jesus, especially the religious leaders. They were offended when Jesus shut down the temple marketplace that financially exploited many people. They were offended when Jesus accepted the praise from disabled people that he healed in the temple. And these religious elites decided they needed to publicly discredit Jesus, so they challenged him to a great public debate in the temple. And in this debate, virtually every group of significance in first century Judaism came And they posed a tricky question to Jesus, hoping to stumble him, hoping to discredit him. And in each case, Jesus sidestepped their traps and did so in such a way that not only showed his great wisdom, but also exposed the wicked intention of his opponents. Now, after all this, you would think that the people in Jerusalem would say, Hey, Jesus won this debate. He's wiser than our wise men. He heals the sick. He wields the power of God. He must be the Messiah. But instead, the people remained unmoved and opposed to him. And so Jesus pronounced judgment on Jerusalem, on its religious leaders and its people. And this pronouncement caused Jesus' disciples to ask him some questions about what was going to happen in the future. And that led Jesus to preach a very long sermon in chapters 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse, all about the shape of history. But now that sermon has concluded, and it is at this point we pick up now, Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. At this point, Jesus has concluded his teaching ministry in Matthew's Gospel. Now, John tells us that there will be one more lengthy sermon Jesus will preach in the upper room. For some reason, Matthew has chosen not to record that for us. So from this point on, Jesus is not going to preach any more of the lengthy sermons that have characterized this book. But he is going to still issue a few more instructions and commands. And yet, while Jesus' teaching ministry has ended, his mission is not complete. Because Jesus still has before him his final, his most important aspect of his ministry. He must go to the cross and he must rise from the dead. Now I want to draw your attention to the fact that Matthew's passion narrative begins with Jesus speaking. Once more predicting his death. This is important because it shows us that Jesus is sovereign over everything that's going to take place in the next few chapters. I think it's really easy to think about the crucifixion as being an event in which Jesus is primarily passive, which things are done to Jesus by the Jewish leaders or by the Romans. It's easy for us to see Jesus as acted upon rather than doing any action. But what we find here is actually Jesus is in control over everything that's about to take place. While Jesus may appear powerless, As he is mocked and brutalized and crucified. In actuality, he is in control. Jesus is sovereign because he is, in fact, Lord. And we see here that that in the fact that Jesus prophesies his crucifixion. Now, he's made some similar prophecies in the past in this book. Back first in chapter 16, where he said he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. He repeated similar statements twice in chapter 17. And then right before he entered Jerusalem in chapter 20, he makes an even more specific statement. He says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Here Jesus puts a lot of flesh on the prophecy. He, ex- he specifies that it isn't just the Jewish leaders who are going to have a hand in his death. The Gentiles, the Romans will as well. He specifies that he will endure mocking and flogging. And most significantly he specifies the manner with which he will die by crucifixion. And now, in our passage, just two days before the Passover, Jesus prophesies again. And he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, we talked a lot about this phrase, Son of Man, in recent weeks. It comes from Daniel 7. And it speaks of a figure who is both truly divine and who is truly human, who will receive an unending global kingdom from the Father. And Jesus, throughout this book, again and again, has said, I'm the Son of Man. He's called himself the Son of Man. Jesus is this one who is both God and man, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet he says, I've got to die by crucifixion. But now Jesus adds one more detail he has not yet revealed, as he specifies when exactly he will die. And he notes the Passover is just two days away, and Jesus says it's going to be then that he must die. But why must Jesus die? Because he's on a mission. The Father sent him into the world to accomplish something. This has been clear from chapter 1 of this book. When the angel told Joseph, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus explained it like this in chapter 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to earth to die as a substitute, as a sacrifice offered to deliver people from the power and penalty of sin. This was the eternal plan and purpose of God. And it was foreshadowed and prophesied through the whole Old Testament. Foreshadowed even in that festival of Passover, which commemorated an event that had happened 1,500 years earlier. When God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt by sending a terrible judgment upon the Egyptians. But God promised that his judgment would pass over every household that had been covered by the blood of a sacrificed lamb. The people covered by the blood of the lamb would not face the judgment of God. And in the same way, 1500 years later, to the day on the Passover, Jesus would die as a sacrifice. The ultimate Passover lamb. His blood is poured out so that anyone covered by it might not taste the judgment of God for our sin. But instead, by the blood of Christ, we are delivered from slavery to sin. We are set free to a new life of service to God. The parallel is exact, friends. And this is no accident. It's God's eternal plan. Jesus must die, and he must die on the Passover So that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus dies to free us from slavery to sin. Jesus dies to deliver us from the judgment of God. But friends, understand that Jesus delivers and liberates only those who are covered by his blood. Only those who repentantly believe in him. Only those who turn away from our old lives, and who turn to follow Jesus, trusting in Him and His finished work as the only means of salvation. And so what Jesus says here to the disciples is, I'm about to die. And He knows that because He's God, because He's in total control over everything that's about to take place. And so in the coming weeks, as we talk about Jesus' passion, I don't want you to see this and think, oh, Jesus is powerless victim. No, friend, I want you to see this is the predetermined and eternally planned victory of God through Jesus. But now we come to our second point, and now we're going to see these three responses to Jesus that are going to set the stage for what we see in the next chapters, and that are going to teach us a bit about the way people respond to Jesus, even in our own time. So let's consider now the first of these responses. As we see the response of the Sanhedrin, who hatefully opposes Jesus. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is opposed, he's usually opposed by the scribes and the Pharisees. But moving forward now, we're going to see Jesus' Jewish persecutors are primarily described as the chief priests and elders. Why this change? Well, the Pharisees were simply one faction in first century Judaism. They were a popular and well-respected group, as the scribes were. But, you know, there were other groups out there. And while the scribes and Pharisees were influential, they were not authoritative. They didn't have any formal power. The body that had formal authoritative power in first century Judaism was the Sanhedrin. It was a council of 71 judges who were the final word on all religious questions. And the Sanhedrin consisted of the chief priests, who would have been Sadducees, and other lay leaders from within Judaism that would have come from various parties, including the Pharisees. So what has happened is that now, The most authoritative body in Judaism has come to the same conclusion that the scribes and Pharisees have had throughout this whole book, which is that Jesus is dangerous and he's got to die. How did this happen? Well, we're told the Sanhedrin met together in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. And John's gospel tells us a bit about this meeting. John chapter 11, verse 47 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, And said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Sanhedrin's afraid. They think if Jesus is acclaimed as the Messiah by the people uh, because of his miracles, Rome's going to come. Rome's going to destroy Jerusalem. Particularly, they're really worried here because in John 11, Jesus has just brought Lazarus back from the dead, and it's caused quite a stir. And so they say, we've got to act now. Now, tragically, Jesus has warned the Sanhedrin against the very line of logic that it pursues here. Because Jesus spoke to them in chapters 21 and 22, and he told them some parables. And the point is this. He said, you're going to lose your city. The Romans are going to destroy your city. Not because you acclaim me as the Messiah, but because you are going to reject and murder God's Son. What they think is going to spare them is actually going to be what leads them to destruction. But the Sanhedrin was so hard-hearted and so obstinate in rejecting Jesus, their ears are closed and their hearts and minds are deadened. And we see that most clearly as this man Caiaphas, the leader, speaks. John eleven forty nine 49 says, But one of them... Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Here's the reasoning of the high priest. If Jesus is dangerous, let's murder him. The end justifies the means. It's pure pragmatism. And so John eleven fifty three 53 says, From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas's wicked, murderous plan is enacted. This Supreme Court that is supposed to dispense justice agrees to execute injustice. This court that is constituted in the name of God now agrees to kill the man who is God. And yet in the midst of all this evil, we still see God's power. Because as Acts 2 says, the crucifixion of Jesus was done by the hands of lawless men. But it was also according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Because John tells us that Caiaphas' words had a double meaning. He intended only one meaning, that, that Jesus should be murdered. But there was a second, a theological meaning that he was totally unaware of. John 11.51 says, He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Indeed, God in his wisdom has determined it is much better for one man to die than for the whole world to be destroyed by his wrath for sin. So Jesus must die to fulfill the good plan of God and also to satiate the murderous wickedness of the Sanhedrin. But notice next what we see in Matthew 26, what the the Sanhedrin says, verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The Sanhedrin could have arrested Jesus at any time. Luke says every day during the final week, Jesus went to the temple to teach. But the Sanhedrin is afraid. If they arrest Jesus at the temple, people will see them. And those folks who were acclaiming Jesus a few days earlier might riot So instead, they come up with a plan. Let's do what they call today disappearing someone. Let's disappear Jesus. Let's get him without witnesses and, oh, I don't know where Jesus is. And then when the feast is over and the pilgrims go home, then they'll kill him. Now, this is really twisted. These religious leaders don't fear God. They aren't afraid to murder the Messiah, but they fear men. They're afraid of Rome. They're afraid of the crowds. Man, we learn a lot about false religious teachers in this passage, don't we? Misplaced fear, all this pragmatism. But again, we have to ask ourselves, who is really going to be in charge in the passion? The Sanhedrin has a plot. They want to kill Jesus after the feast. But Jesus has prophesied he's going to die on the Passover. Who will be right? Jesus will. Because at the end of the day, he's the one who's truly in charge. But what should we here today make of the Sanhedrin's response to Jesus? What we see here is wicked, hateful unbelief. And we know that because Acts 4 points to this plot and says this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves on the rulers, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Friends, that is the essence of unbelief. A hatred of the reality that God is in control and that he tells us how we should live. An illusion that we can be free from God's rule to do whatever we want. You know, we live in an age when unbelief is glamorized and applauded. People boast, oh, I reject Christianity because I'm enlightened. I believe what science tells me about the Big Bang and evolution. Or today, I reject Christianity because I want to live my own authentic life. And people say, oh, you're so brave. Friends, that's all nonsense. It's not intellectual to believe that the universe spontaneously arose out of nothingness. It's not intellectual to believe that life spontaneously arose out of non-life. It is transparently absurd. Neither is it brave or courageous to say, I love my sin and I want nothing to do with Jesus. Friends, that's not brave. That's commonplace. That's what the world does. No, all of these things are excuses to suppress the truth that is so obvious to anyone that just looks at things as they really are. There is a God. He is holy. We are sinful. He will hold us to account And it is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. And if we think that we can successfully resist these realities, we are deceiving ourselves. Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Friends, you can't beat God. And these guys who thought they could take down God's plan and God's Messiah, what did they reap? The very destruction they thought they could avoid by murdering Jesus. And friends, if we rebel and hate Jesus because he is Lord and because he tells us to repent of our sin and obey him, we need to know that our end will be the same end as those people who murdered Jesus back then. Destruction, calamity, and hell. Friend, opposing Jesus is not wisdom. It is the height of folly. Do not harden your heart towards Jesus as the Sanhedrin did. Bow the knee to Jesus. Acclaim him as your Lord and Savior. Turn to him and live But we come now to the second response towards Jesus, and this one's very different. As now we see a woman's response who lovingly serves Jesus. Now, we've said before that during his final week, Jesus and his disciples spent each day in Jerusalem. And at night, they retired to a small town outside the city on the Mount of Olives called Bethany. And that's where the next scene takes place. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now here Jesus is at the home of a man called Simon the leper. We don't know anything about him except that he had leprosy at some point. Presumably he didn't anymore or else everybody in this scene would be violating the law for being in his house. Maybe Jesus healed Simon. That's quite possible. The Bible never tells us that. Now, this incident at Simon the leper's house is also found in Mark and John. There's another very similar incident recorded in Luke 7, where a woman comes before Jesus and anoints Jesus' feet with ointment and uses her tears to wet her hair, and she wipes Jesus' feet. And many people think that what we're about to read is the same incident as that event in Luke 7. But there are a few differences that cause me to think that this is a different event, okay? So to help us understand what's going to happen in our passage, I'm primarily going to be looking also at what we read in Mark and John, Mark 14 and John 12, not to Luke 7. Now, John tells us that the woman who approaches Jesus here is named Mary. And there are many Marys in the Bible. This Mary was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And all three of them lived in this same town of Bethany. We read about this family in Luke 10. That while Martha was distracted with much serving, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary had some real insight that Jesus was really significant. And she was very interested in and devoted to his words. That's what characterized her. So now we find Jesus at this dinner with his disciples. John 12, 2 says, Martha served. No surprise. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And all of a sudden, in comes Mary, and she's carrying this flask of perfume. Mark 14.3 says she broke the flask and poured it over his head. John 12.3 says Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want you to notice a few things here. First, What is contained in Mary's vial is exceedingly expensive. Uh, The substance within is the oil of nard, which is a plant native to India. Mark and John both use a number of terms that in Greek here speak of its genuineness, its purity, and its value. And as a result, Mark 14 tells us the price tag for this substance was 300 denarii, almost a year's wages for the average worker. And that doesn't count the added value of the flask that Mary broke. In our world today, this object would probably be worth something like sixty dollars to $100,000. So this is an amazingly valuable object that Mary has. We might say, well, how, how did she come to own it? Well, maybe Lazarus and his family were quite wealthy. And perhaps they had bought this from merchants who traded on the Silk Road. Uh, Perhaps this was a family heirloom that had come down to Mary. We cannot know. But we know that she has this valuable object, and now she sacrifices it to use on Jesus. Now, this might seem very strange to us. Why would you pour perfumed oil on somebody's head? But in first-century Jewish culture, this was a way of showing honor to an important guest to whom you were showing hospitality. We find evidence of this as far back as Psalm 23. Remember David's talking about the goodness of God and he says it's like a banquet table's been set up in the presence of his enemies. Good food and good wine. And he says, you anoint my head with oil. Or in Luke 7, Jesus says, a real showing of hospitality in his day involved washing the guest of honor's feet and anointing his head with oil. So what Mary is doing here is something that has cultural significance that communicates deep respect But she doesn't just pour a little olive oil on Jesus' head, which is how this custom would have been practiced in that day. She pours, and that's really the verb to use here, she drenches Jesus in this vastly expensive oil because we hear that there's a large quantity of this which is used on Jesus at this point. And it's poured not just on his head, but also down to his feet. Because in the ancient world, when people ate, They would recline on an elbow with their face near the table, and their feet would would jut out from away from from the table. So as Mary came up behind Jesus, she would be able to pour this over him very easily from his head to his toes. Now I want you to also notice here that Mary doesn't hold anything back. Mark says she broke the vial. She engages in a very public act. To show that this object, which had to be the most expensive thing that she owned, was going to be totally sacrificed and dedicated to Jesus in this extravagant show of honor. She was even going to make the expensive container that held the perfume worthless by breaking it. She totally dedicates all of her best object to Jesus. And in so doing, she shows way more than the customary respect showed to a guest of honor. This is an act of Deep reverence and loving devotion. It's also an act of deep humility and service. As she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Think about that. I mean, do you want to wipe your hair on somebody's feet? But She did. Because she loved Jesus. She wanted to serve Jesus. She was personally committed and dedicated to Jesus. This is a really moving gesture she makes of reverence towards Jesus. And yet most of the people who saw it were unmoved. Look at verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus' disciples understood they should give to the poor. And when they saw Mary breaking this flask and dousing Jesus in this expensive fluid, they were appalled. Wow, we could have really got some return giving to the poor if you just sold that and put the money in the treasury of Jesus' ministry, they thought. Why this waste? And so they complained. But while most of the disciples were antagonistic towards Mary because they thought this was wasteful, one of the disciples was angry for different reasons. John 12, verse 4 says that Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, this is the first time Judas has done anything noteworthy in the Gospels. And what he does now is stir up complaining about Mary. Not because he wants to help the poor, but because he wants to help himself. Because he is the treasurer and he is a greedy thief. And he's complaining. Because he's thinking about all the money that could have been in his pocket if she had just sold the perfume and donated it to Jesus' ministry. Now, if that disgusts you, just wait a few minutes because Judas is about to do something a lot worse. But we're not there yet. So Judas has gotten the disciples to grouse about Mary's act of kindness towards Jesus. And now Jesus speaks in her defense. Look at verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, "'Why do you trouble the woman?' For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus isn't against being generous to the poor. Being generous to the poor is a good thing. In fact, when Jesus says here, you always have the poor with you, he's quoting from a passage in Deuteronomy 15, which commands taking care of the poor. Yes, we should take care of poor people who can't take care of themselves. But Mary here has chosen to dedicate the most valuable object she had to Jesus. And Jesus says, while there will always be opportunities for extravagant kindness to the poor, there won't always be opportunities like this to be directly kind to him. Mary has dedicated this most valuable object to Jesus, and Jesus says that's beautiful. To have this kind of dedication and willingness to sacrifice to honor him. But even more than that, Mary's actions have a second significance she probably didn't understand. Because Jesus says here that her actions have served to prepare him for his burial. Jesus is about to die. Now, it seems that everybody around Jesus had heard him say this many times, but none of them really understood it yet. Luke 18 says uh, these things were hidden from the people around Jesus. But Jesus meant what he was saying. He was shortly going to die. And in Jewish culture, when someone died, their body was prepared for burial by anointing it with perfumed oils and wrapping it in a shroud that contained spices to suppress the smell of decay. But Jesus says he's not just going to die a normal death, he's going to die a criminal's death. He's going to die on the cross. And these niceties were not usually performed for those who were crucified. In fact, in Jesus' case, while he will be enshrouded with spices, as was the custom Uh, he would not be anointed with perfumed oil. That's why on Easter morning, Mark 16 says the women came because they wanted to anoint Jesus' body, and that's when they stumbled into the the empty tomb and the, the stone being rolled away. And so what Mary has done here is to functionally provide Jesus with the anointing that most Jewish bodies would receive before their funeral, which he will not receive. And taken by this act of adoration and reverence, Jesus says this, verse 13... Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says when the gospel was proclaimed, probably talking about the story of his life, Mary's act of kindness would be recited. She would be perpetually remembered for the way that she showed love to Jesus here. It's prophecy that came true when the gospels were written that recorded her act It's a prophecy that comes true any time a church preaches on this passage. It's a prophecy that's being fulfilled even now as I speak to you about her actions. Mary's kind deed has been proclaimed around the whole world for 2,000 years, and her love for Jesus has been remembered. Now, what should we take from this second response? Throughout Matthew's gospel, we have seen again and again that discipleship is very costly. Jesus has said following him is going to cost us our comfort and our convenience. When he told a man in Matthew 8, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. We should not expect luxurious living. Jesus has said that following him will cost us our public reputation. Matthew 10.24, he says, "...a disciple is not above his teacher." If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much will they malign those of his household? To follow Jesus is to be maligned, to be hated and slandered. And Jesus has said following him means we will suffer unjustly. Matthew ten seventeen, he says, Beware of men, they will drag you over to courts and flog you in synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. Jesus has said, that following him means we have to put him above all else. In Matthew 8, Jesus says following him is more important than our duties to our family. In Matthew 10, he says following him takes priority even over maintaining good relationships in our family. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And ultimately, Jesus has warned that following him means that we may die deaths of martyrdom. Matthew ten thirty eight, he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Twice in this book, Jesus has, has said, following him means carrying a cross. People in the first century understood what that meant. It's making the long, sad walk of mockery and, and suffering that ends in a death of torture. And friends, if Jesus says that following him can cost us all of this, then his point is clear. Following Jesus demands all from us because Jesus demands priority over everything else in our lives. And in our passage, we now see an example of someone's total dedication to Jesus who is willing to give all for him. Because what is Mary doing when she smashes this expensive object? She's destroying what might have been a valuable family heirloom Because Jesus means more to her than her family. She's destroying an object she could have sold to become fabulously wealthy. Because Jesus means more to her than money. She's destroying something that would have given her financial stability. Because Jesus means more to her than securing an easy life in the future. She sacrifices her personal dignity, scrubbing Jesus' feet with her hair. Because she doesn't care that the disciples are watching it thinking it's bizarre. She holds nothing back, not even the container. So it won't be there to sit on the shelf in years to come for her to look at and say, maybe I made the wrong decision. No, she gives it all to Jesus. Because Matthew 6.24 says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And unlike the rich young ruler in chapter 19 who chose money, Mary chose Jesus. And friends, no less is expected from us. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What is the worship that we owe God? That we devote our bodies and minds to Him all of the time, that we would live as a sacrifice, totally dedicated to Him. That's the worship that God desires. It's total. It's demanding. It's costly. And friend, I have to ask you, as you read about what Mary did here, do you see her devotion to Jesus and say, wow, that's beautiful. Is it an example for us? Or are we like the disciples? Thinking, man, I would have made a different choice. Because in the end, we'd rather have silver and gold than Jesus. Because we think The American dream of financial stability is more real and important than having treasure in heaven. Because we wouldn't want other people to look at us and say, Wow, you're so crazy that you would do that for Jesus. And maybe today you say, Well, I'm not faced by the choice Mary was faced with because Jesus isn't here anymore. He's in heaven. Well, guess what? We saw back in chapter 25 that as we do good deeds for fellow believers, it's as though we had done them to Jesus himself. So, friends, there are opportunities For sacrificial service like this today. When our brothers or sisters are hurting abroad or in our church family, are we willing to help them? I've got to say, in the past, members of this church have been tremendously generous under such circumstances. And I commend that. And I would say excel still further. But friends, we need to clutch the things of this world less because it is fading away. And we need to pursue treasure in heaven that does not rust or fade, that is not subject to theft, and we do that by living generously, by rendering our best to Jesus, not just financially, but in everything that we put our hands to do. If we serve Jesus in the church. We should. And when we do so, we should put forth our best effort. And when we go to, office, go to the office to work, we should put forth our best effort as though Jesus himself were our boss examining the, the quality of our work. At home, As we take care of our spouses and children, we should do that as unto the Lord. Everything we do should be done to the glory of God. Friends, we've talked about discipleship being costly. We've said we must be willing to withhold nothing from Jesus, even our very lives, if they're required of us. But I think this passage challenges us still further. Because it makes us ask, what in our lives have we sacrificed out of love for Jesus? What treasure? What time? What energy? What relationships? And what does the measure of our sacrifice show the measure of our love to be? But we come now to the final thing we see in our passage, as we see the response of a false disciple who betrays Jesus. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas has appeared only once before in this book, back in chapter 10, when the names of the disciples are given. And in every list of the disciples in the Bible, Judas is always last. And this is not an occasion where the last will become first. This is an occasion where the last will remain last. Now, Judas becomes a very important figure in this book as it draws to its conclusion. Because at this point, Judas decides that he wants out. He had been with Jesus in Galilee... He had made that missionary journey in chapter 10 and preached about Jesus. He'd traveled with Jesus far and wide and he'd come to Jerusalem, but no more. He wants out and he decides the best way to get out is to sell Jesus to his enemies. John eleven fifty seven 57 says, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And Judas apparently was aware of this. And Judas understood duplicity. So he understands what the Sanhedrin wants. They want to arrest Jesus by stealth, not to grab him during the daytime at the temple when people are watching, but at night when there will be no witnesses. And Judas sees now that there's one more chance for financial gain to be had out of Jesus' ministry after all, because he is well placed to assist the Sanhedrin in their plot, because he knows where Jesus stays in the evenings. He knows where Jesus likes to visit, and he'll be able to point Jesus out when the guards come to arrest him. And so Judas offers to sell Jesus to his enemies. Why? Many answers have been suggested over the years. Two of the Gospels explicitly connect Judas' betrayal to the incident involving Mary's perfume. Perhaps Judas was mad about some aspect of that situation. Many people have suggested that Judas was angry Because he wanted a Messiah who was going to be a political agitator. Who was going to want to kill Romans. And Jesus wasn't that. So he decides now he wants out. The bottom line is this. The gospel writers never tell us what Judas' thoughts were behind his betrayal. And that's because on this issue, his motive doesn't matter. His action was so innately damnable, it doesn't matter what his intention was. The only clue we're given about his motive is this. He sought money. And as we said earlier, he was a greedy thief. And it seems that if he wanted to cut and run, he wanted to make some profit for the time that he had sunk into Jesus' ministry. But while that might be an earthly explanation of his betrayal, there is another cause. Because Luke 22 begins its account of the betrayal with these words Satan entered into Judas. And this is an important point, friends. Jesus died because it was the will of the Father. Jesus died because it was the will of evil, hard-hearted men who wanted to be rid of their enemy. But Jesus also died because it was the desire of Satan to kill him. Because Satan apparently believed that by killing Jesus, he was winning some kind of victory over the plan of God. And so Satan influences Judas to perform this evil deed. So Judas makes his offer, and the Sanhedrin accepts it. Verse 15. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, that might sound extravagant to us today, but in actuality, it was not. Exodus 21 says, this was the price that was to be paid to the owner of a slave who was accidentally gored to death by an ox. So the Sanhedrin judges Jesus' value to be worth a dead slave. Uh, The same value appears in a prophecy in Zechariah 11.13, which we'll talk more about in a few weeks, in which false religious leaders insult the prophet, by giving him a paltry sum of thirty pieces of silver. How much money in today's world would thirty pieces of silver be? If we understand these pieces of silver to be temple shekels, the amount is something approximating two months of a day laborer's wages. In our world today, this would be something like three to five thousand dollars. And Judas accepts this price. Verse sixteen. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity. Betray him. The stage is set. The Son of Man will indeed be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. Now, what should we learn here? Let me draw two things to your attention before we apply this passage. And both of these things are comparisons with Mary, who we just read about in verses 6 to 13. First, Mary did a good deed for Jesus. And as a reward, in verse 13, Jesus says that Mary's action will be forever remembered. And recited when his story is told. But here Judas betrays Jesus. And as a result, every time in the Bible, when Judas's name appears, it's always immediately followed by a statement that he was the one who betrayed Christ. See, friends, what we do really matters. Our deeds follow us. What we do speaks volumes about who we really are. It forms our legacy. And we see here two legacies, a legacy of loving service to Christ and a legacy of treason. And these legacies go on forever. Now, friends, few of us will have legacies that are remembered more than a generation after we're gone. But while we're remembered here, how do we want to be remembered? As someone who loved and served Christ or as someone who was a fraud or a traitor but even beyond the scope of this world, we saw in Matthew 25, Jesus talked about final judgment. And there he said, a real relationship with him bears good works that survive his scrutiny on the last day, while a lack of good works indicates a lack of true faith and a lack of true connection to Christ. Friends, what we do matters. We will be remembered for what we do here for a time, and we will be remembered for it by God forever in either heaven or or hell. But second, I want you to consider the monetary aspects of what we've seen this morning. Mary is willing to sacrifice her vial of perfume that costs between sixty to to $100,000 so that she could briefly honor Jesus, because Mary understood that Jesus was worth that kind of a sacrifice. But Judas sold Jesus out for something like 4,000 bucks, Because Judas thought that Jesus was worthless. Friends, how do we see and value Jesus? Do we love him? Is he valuable to us? Is his gospel our treasure? Remember the parables in chapter 13? Kingdom of heaven is like a buried treasure. Or like an immensely beautiful pearl. Such that a man goes and sells all that he has to acquire it. Is that how we regard Jesus and his gospel? Do we pursue Jesus with all we are and with all that we have? Or do we hold Jesus and his gospel in slight regard? Maybe like Judas, we judge them to be worthless. Friends, don't be foolish. Jesus is worth all that we have and infinitely more. And Jesus asks this question in chapter 16. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What's your soul worth? What is your eternal destiny worth? Judas was happy to damn himself for 5,000 bucks. For many people today, they gladly lose their soul for a lot less than that. They give it to keep on enjoying the momentary fleeting and false pleasures of the flesh. Or for the approval of the world. Or for the rush that comes from pride and thinking we've attained the good life. Because so many people perceive no value in Christ and they place no value on their eternal destiny. And so they trade it for Esau's bowl of porridge. How foolish. Friend, we must not be like that. Are you so devoted to some sin in your life that it has become more precious to you than Christ? If so, and if God gives you the grace to have ears that hear today, I plead with you to turn from that and turn to Jesus. You know, Judas professed to know Christ, but he was a fraud. Titus 1.16 speaks of people who profess to know God, but who deny him by their works. That's Judas. I pray that's not any of us. Friend, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13 says. What does your life say? about how you regard Jesus. And let me conclude today's sermon asking just generally, what is Jesus worth to you? What in your life is more important than Jesus? What would you rather have than Jesus? And don't just say, oh, nothing, because that's a Sunday school answer and you're in a church. Think about it. What gain would cause you to say, I'm done with Christ? What prospect of gain would cause you to say, I'm ready to compromise for that. What measure of wealth or fame or prestige or personal stability or romance would be the approval of your family, the approval of the world, the approval of the Internet? Friend, Jesus is more important than every measure of every one of those things. Today, do you profess to know Jesus but deny him by your works? Or do you see that Jesus is worth all that we have and all that we are and so much more? Friends, today we've seen who Jesus is. He's God and man. He died on the cross in our place. He took the death that you and I deserved because of our sin. He rose victorious from the dead. He alone can bring us into a right relationship with the Father by God's grace alone, through repentant faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Friend, I plead with you today, if you are like the Sanhedrin, if you hate Jesus, if you don't want to hear any more of this because you want to go live your own life, I plead with you, repent and believe the gospel. If you're like Judas and you say, Jesus is not valuable to me anymore, I found something more worthwhile, I plead with you, repent and believe the gospel. And today let us consider the example of Mary who loved Jesus so much that she gave him her best. She gave him all that she had because she rightly saw Jesus was more valuable than anything this world contains. And may we make that same determination. May we, as a result, clutch the things of this world more loosely. May we seek the things that pertain to Christ and his kingdom more fervently. And may we serve the people of God more sacrificially.